This October, we will celebrate our fourth anniversary as the Journey Community Church, which means that we are now beginning our fifth year of ministry. That's pretty exciting. I look around the room and see all the different people that are here and remember back to our early gatherings. And what I'd like to do to celebrate a little bit and to lay the context for the new series we're about to launch for the next four weeks is take you back through that journey. It was the winter of 2010 that a small group of people in the Metro West area began seeking God. It was out of that group that the original concept of the Journey Community Church began. And I want to ask those of you that are here today that were part of that original small group, would you stand? Brave people to stick with us all this time. Thank you. And then we began meeting in the summer of 2010, worshiping, but mostly laying the foundation and planning for a fall launch. That's the picture of our very first gathering of that group. If you were at that very first meeting in July of 2010, would you stand? That group began to meet and plan and pray and invest a lot of sacrifices were made by that group, and finally in October of that year, we began our first public service in Shrewsbury. I think the picture's up there. If you were at that first worship service, would you stand? Excellent. Thank you. Here was the problem with that space. We had always felt God had called us to the city of Worcester, and for some reason, space in the city just wasn't something that had opened up, so we ended up across the river. And uh, the story of how we ended up in this space is pretty miraculous. It's a long story. But we ended up here, winter of 2011, when we began, not in this room. We were actually across the hall in the conference room there. I'm wondering if you were at that first meeting in Worcester. Would you stand, please? This is the vision statement that God gave those first 12 people, what we wanted to see God do. I'd like you to say this with me. We envision an intergenerational, ethnically diverse family of Christ followers worshiping and growing and serving together in a grace-saturated environment that welcomes seeker and saint alike. Now, if you came to the journey sometime in 2012, would you stand? If you have come to the journey in the last 12 months, would you stand with that group? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? If this is your first Sunday today, now you can stand and not feel uncomfortable like we've pointed you out. Let's welcome those that have joined us just today. Just take a minute and look around. And when I see who we are today, I see... That church, that vision, now you can be seated. I, I find it amazing that the group that first envisioned an intergenerational church that welcomed especially millennials, young adults today, more than half of our attendance is young adults between ages of 20 and 34, an ethnically diverse group, which we're showing more and more as we grow in this city. The group that first formed that vision was 12 middle-aged white people living in the suburbs counterintuitive, but when God calls, you step out and you trust God to work, and 
It's exciting to look around. We have a theme verse that we use as a church. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Let's say it together. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted in Him, strengthened in faith, and overflowing with thankfulness. We've used this to remind ourselves from the beginning that we are first and foremost a gospel community. That's the first part of that verse. You received Christ Jesus as Lord. It says everything about Him. Jesus means Savior. Christ means Messiah. Lord means divine. It's all that He is. And we've made that commitment. We're a gospel community on a spiritual journey. Therefore, the name, the Journey Community Church. As you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in that faith. Continue to live in Him. And then we're committed to three priorities, and that's the next slide. You've seen this before. Our first priority is worship, because worship is not just what we do when we're singing on Sunday morning. It's a whole life rooted in and lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we want to be rooted in Him. That's a life of worship. The second priority is community, strengthened in the faith. There's no mature Christian that isn't part of a vibrant community. In the New Testament, just do a word search on one another, and you'll find 34 things or so that we are to do together. We cannot possibly become all that we're meant to be as followers of Jesus if we're not in community. Our faith grows when we reach out to God together. So we're committed to community, and the third priority is generosity, overflowing with thankfulness. Generosity says we reach out to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Nothing we have is ours. It's all God's. He gives it to us to use to bless others. We're blessed by God to bless others. And from the very beginning, it's been our desire to bless this city, to bless people, and to let them know that they're loved by God, and we're expressing that love. These things, these priorities are core to us. And I'm going to begin talking about revisioning ourselves as we come into the fall. But I want to be clear, we are not reinventing ourselves. We believe these three priorities ought to drive us. We don't intend to get busier. We want to get better. But if you look at that original vision statement again, four years ago, that was a real vision. That was something that God was going to have to do miraculously. It was a real vision statement. It drove us. But today, that's not a vision anymore. That's a description. In a lot of ways, we are this church. And we're at a point now where we need to stop thinking like we did when we would just really be happy to get to a point where we actually were a church. That's a miracle itself. Well, less than half of church plants actually get to the point that we're at as a church. But we believe that it's time for us to reimagine, now that we are an intergenerational body of Christ followers, ethnically diverse, grace-saturated community where we welcome seeker and saint, because we are that community. What is it that God wants to put in front of us that says this is what that community should be focusing on? And so that's what this series is about. I was thinking about when I first got glasses, I got glasses in between my 6th and 7th grade school years. That's a horrible time because I really was called four eyes in junior high. Back then, you, you got glasses not like today, you know, glasses in about an hour. It was more like glasses in about a month. 
And when you're active as a kid, you break glasses, and then you have to use tape to put them together because it's another month before the next set comes in. That's how the geek generation was born. It was just lack of access to quick eyewear. (laughs) That was me. But I actually needed glasses for a couple of years before that, and I didn't know it. I thought everybody had a problem looking at the board from the back of the room. I thought everybody had to squint. But it didn't occur to me that that wasn't normal. The world was as I perceived it. I thought it was how everybody saw it. We were in a small town. My dad was the pastor of a growing church, and we had just built a brand new facility. And they had just put the sign for the church about halfway up the field. As we're pulling out, we're admiring it. And my little sister was reading that sign. I remember actually saying, you can see that? You can read that? Finally, my parents were uh, alerted to the problem. I went to an optician, and about a month later, I went and picked up the glasses, and I put them on. And the first thing I saw was my face and realized I had freckles. (laughs) I thought I was a very smooth, fair, good-looking man. It was a crazy thing. I looked at myself and went, I have freckles. I hadn't noticed. And as we began to walk outside, I saw leaves, not just trees. It was amazing. The world changed. And I didn't even know I was missing it. I think that we can think we're seeing everything we're meant to see, and actually we're nearsighted to all that God really wants to do for us and do through us. And we need those seasons where we check our vision and see if we don't need to sharpen our focus. And when we do that, we see new things about ourselves, new things about the world around us, and how to get where we're going. Periodically, I've had to upgrade my prescription. Not only am I nearsighted, I'm now somehow farsighted at the same time. I'm burning the optical candle at both ends. So I go to the doctor periodically and get fresh prescription. I think we need these seasons. We need to take a moment and just say, how are we doing? How is our vision? And so what we are going to present in this series is to sharpen our vision through a very particular biblical lens. And that lens is summarized by two words kingdom come. And our theme verse, not just for this series, it's the theme for our whole year, is Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. And I'd like you to say these with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Over the next four weeks, we're going to come at it through different perspectives so that by the time we're done, our understanding of this all-important passage quoted by Jesus about himself, about his mission, and therefore ultimately about us as his followers and our mission will become part of who we are. 
It's a beautiful picture. I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 4. Let me give you the background, Luke's telling of the life of Jesus and why this passage is so important. Luke, in his first three chapters, very quickly works through the birth of Jesus, the childhood of Jesus. Luke gives us the only glimpse of Jesus as an adolescent. And then 18 years go by, and we have John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one that the prophet said would come and pronounce the coming of the Messiah. We have John the Baptist. Then we have the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Immediately, we have the temptation of Jesus. And now, chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, is the beginning of Luke's telling of Jesus' ministry years at roughly the age of 30. So what we're about to read is the very first thing Luke records that Jesus says about his ministry and his calling. Let's pick it up at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And by the way, this is Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to go back there next week. But this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm hoping today to help you understand how epic, how world-shaking that statement is. We don't really know what Jesus did in the 18 years that went by between his being in the temple, confounding the priests and the scribes and the teachers there, and beginning his ministry. He is referred to as rabbi, so it's possible that he actually went into rabbinic training. It's certainly likely that this is one of the very first things that he was able to say, even in his home temple, because tradition tells us that Jewish men were not really allowed to expound on Scripture until they were 30 years of age, which is why that age is so important to Jesus. So this may very well be the first time Jesus comes back to his hometown, goes to the synagogue where he grew up worshiping as a boy, and he is allowed to preach the very first time. And what does he do? He literally claims to be the figure, the person that all of Hebrew Scripture is pointing to. And all of the children of Israel for generations has been waiting for. Because you see, the passage that he reads in Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy. 
the year of the Lord's favor. Everything that leads up to that, all the different descriptions of social injustice and physical well-being and all the different things that were going to be corrected were all descriptive of that last piece to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. That was the year that would be marked by the coming of the one who was described in the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to preach good news. This is about the Messiah and this is about the coming of the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus say? This is fulfilled right now in this place. Now because we have taken the gospel message, and and by the way, the passage says, he has anointed me to preach what? The gospel. Because we in America have turned the gospel into a very individualistic thing. We miss the significance of Jesus and his gospel and its connection to the kingdom of God. And we view the kingdom of God through the future. This is something that's someday going to happen. And the gospel has become about helping individual people know that they're going to go to heaven when they die. Therefore, our message of the gospel has shrunk down to what John Ortberg calls the essential minimum to help people know that they're going to get into heaven when they die. That's what we've done with the gospel. What we're left with today because of that approach, is frankly the Reader's Digest version of the Gospel, the Cliff Notes version of the Gospel. And while God's very interested in saving our souls, the Gospel is so much bigger than that. And therefore, we being a Gospel community and our mission being about the Gospel is so much bigger. It's not that we shouldn't care for that. That's not the point. The point is it's meant to be one very important component of a much bigger picture. For Jesus, the Gospel was always about the Kingdom of God. Mark tells us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark 1.15, that He went around all the villages and what was it He was proclaiming? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe, what's the word? The good news, the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, is all about what life ought to be like and will be like in the kingdom of God. In relation to the church, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Where Peter, speaking for all of them, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just like in Luke chapter 4, the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Jesus says, that's right, and I'm going to build my church based on that. And this is what he says about that church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So if we're really trying to track the gospel that Jesus preached, we need to understand that he's constantly connecting the good news of who he was and what he'd come to do with the reality and the coming of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, when he talks about the church in the whole book of Acts is about the beginning of that, and we are now 2,000 years plus into the story of the church, when he talks about the church, he connects the church to the kingdom of God. The church somehow, as it grows, will have authority in the kingdom of God. What we loose 
on earth. What we release on earth will be released in heaven. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. We have the keys to the kingdom. We're the access point for the world. At the end of his ministry, after the cross, that great sacrifice for the sins of the world, over those 40 days after his resurrection, he was with his disciples. And what is it that he's speaking about, according to Acts chapter 1? The kingdom of God. Finally, before he leaves, he meets with his followers. And this is what he says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Say this with me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. So what we refer to as the Great Commission, the thing that as churches we say, what's our real vision, our mission statement, ultimately? We can come up with clever wording of what we're supposed to be. Ultimately, this is our mission because Jesus gave it to us. Go and make disciples everywhere. But let me ask you, what's the basis for that mission? What does that mission grow out of? It's the first statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. So even the mission of the church is based on the fact that Jesus Christ now, right now, has all authority in heaven and on earth. So from the very beginning, Luke chapter 4, when he first lays it out by quoting Isaiah, throughout his whole ministry, when he prepares his church with his original vision and then his final 40 days in coaching them and preparing them for, for growing as his body, right till his last words, everywhere where Jesus talks about who he is, what he came to do, everywhere where he talks about the good news, the gospel that changes lives, it's all and always connected to the kingdom of God. And we see something very important in this verse about what the kingdom is. You see, for us, our history has taught us the kingdom is about geographical property. We think of territory, but the biblical concept of kingdom is not about geography. The Greek word for kingdom, which you've heard me say before, is basileia. And it's about the act of reigning. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, what he's saying is, I rule. I rule everything. Say, Jesus rules. And that's why Jesus could say, the kingdom is here. And it's why later on he could say, the kingdom is within you. Because when we surrender to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, when we give him authority over our life, this is where the kingdom is. And when we reach out to others in the name of Jesus and enfold them and they surrender to Jesus Christ, they enter into the kingdom, the beneficent, gracious reign of Christ in their lives. You see, it's all about the kingdom. And if we can capture that and capture how much bigger that makes the gospel, 
I think it'll transform and drive what we believe our mission is about. And it'll, it'll connect the dots of some things we're already doing because we think churches should be doing them, but suddenly we'll look at it and say, oh, this is why we do these things. And that's why we have to get better at doing them because we have the keys to the kingdom and we're on the move. We're on the move extending the reign of Jesus. We're going to come at this idea of the gospel and the kingdom of God, or as Jesus referred to it as the gospel of the kingdom. That's how integral the two concepts are. We could never fully exhaust the theological, biblical depths of this concept, but we're going to look over these weeks at three aspects of the kingdom. Redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Let me just take you through them right now. The first is redemption. Redemption is the act of atonement that Christ performed on the cross through His death by which sin is paid for. This was another piece that the ancient Israelites missed about the Christ. What they were looking for was a king that would come and reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. They were looking for that, and Jesus didn't fit that picture. But there was something else in the Old Testament Scriptures that they missed that was embedded all the way through the history of Israel. And that was their Messiah as the sacrificial lamb. Whether it was the ram in the thicket replacing Isaac on the mountain, or the countless rams that were killed at the temple, all of them pointed ultimately to this Messiah who would come first, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering savior. And without that act of redemption, there would be no kingdom. It was that act of redemption on the cross that makes it possible for you and I to enter into a relationship with God that allows His kingdom to come into our lives. And that's the second aspect of the kingdom, and that's reconciliation. Reconciliation is about the renewal of our relationship with God by the forgiveness of sins. Our relationship with God was broken because of our sin. The whole race in Adam, Scripture says, all fell, and now ultimately all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's that relationship with God through which His reign and rule and blessing in our life, both now and for eternity, is experienced. It's that relationship that the redemptive work of Christ made possible. 2 Corinthians 5 17, am I right? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ. So the kingdom is about humanity being reconciled back into relationship with God. The third aspect is restoration. And this is the part because of how we have individualized the gospel and the gospel message. This is the part that we need to add in order to broaden our understanding of the mission, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. And that's restoration. And that is the work of establishing God's authority and plan over culture and creation. You see, God's plan, the redemptive work of Christ, the work of reconciliation, was not meant just for people. 
Jesus didn't come into the world just to fix you and me. Here's what's beautiful about it. He came into the world. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. And he ascended again to the Father. He did that not just to fix you and me. He did that to fix everything. Colossians 1 says that in Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. That that's his ultimate plan. It's not just about people. It's about culture. And it's about creation. And our mission is not just about saving people from hell and making sure they know how to go to heaven when they die. Our mission is to extend the reign of Jesus into the hearts and lives of people, but not just people. To extend the reign, to show what the world would look like if Jesus were in charge right now. To bring that blessing into culture. We are God's change agents in culture because we bring the kingdom with us. This is one of the things about the kingdom that we'll have to look at in weeks to come. Theologians refer to the kingdom as now and not yet. Now, Jesus reigns in us. And where we reach out with the hands and feet of Jesus, we extend that reign, that blessing. But yet, there is a future promise. Jesus came as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the suffering Savior. He made it possible for us to be in relationship with God, to be redeemed. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Jesus does rule. He has been exalted by the Father. But yet, he promises there is yet a day when he will return. And when he returns, it will not be a suffering Savior. It will be his conquering King. And then, the restoration the reconciliation will be complete. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and our corruptible bodies will put on incorruptible. Our mortal frames will become immortal. Christ will ultimately come, and everything will be restored. But until he does, there is the now of the kingdom of God. There is the presence of the kingdom of God in us, and there is the mission to extend that kingdom everywhere. And that's what we're going to look at. What would that look like as a church if we began to see ourselves as change agents in the world around us? At the heart of which is the gospel that changes hearts. But not just that. As those that are working to bring about the kingdom. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray. Let's say this together. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we weren't looking at the kingdom as something that Jesus commenced in his ministry and that is present today in our lives and that God intends to extend through his church because we have the keys to the kingdom, if we weren't learning to see ourselves as extenders of the kingdom, we would think this prayer is about asking Jesus to come real soon. <laughs> Your kingdom come. But you see, this little piece of the Lord's Prayer is actually its own commentary. Jesus not only calls us to cry for the kingdom, but shows us what it is. It's the rule of Christ. 
When we say your kingdom come, we are saying, Christ, come and rule. And that's why he describes the coming of the kingdom as your will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're about. It's actually a glorious, glorious restoration project. How incredible that God allows us to not only be the objects of that restoration and reconciliation, but then turns us into ministers of that reconciliation. Paul goes on and says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. He has given us that ministry of reconciliation. We are pleading with the world to be reconciled to God. Well, that's a snapshot of it. I don't know if I inspired you. I don't know if I created more questions. But what I hope I've done is help you understand that we're about to put on a lens that will help us really think about how much more we can and should be a part of what God wants to do in the world around us. I'm, I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. But ultimately, what I want to encourage you to do right now is to let God's kingdom rule right here, right now. That's a place we can all start. So let's pray together. Would you just pray that little segment of the Lord's Prayer, just softly. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, let that begin in me. Father, I ask that you inspire us with this. I, I'm so caught with this idea and I'm, I'm standing here <laughs> just trusting you that you've encouraged us to think more boldly, more gloriously about what you can do through us. But what we begin by saying is build your kingdom here in our lives and then through us build your kingdom in this city and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.